Well, hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode today. You know, um, William O'Neill once wrote this. He said, quote, Already now, the kingdom of God is a spiritual reality in this world because Christ is on the throne. The kingdom is manifest wherever the Holy Spirit is working and wherever we find people who, though in weakness, submit their lives and their societal institutions to the authority of the King in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's such an appropriate quote for what we're going to be covering today's in today's episode. Uh, I've got the privilege of having Dr. Tony Costa as our guest today. Tony Costa, he earned his BA and MA in Biblical Studies from the University of Toronto and earned his PhD in New Testament and Theology from Raboud University in the Netherlands. He's a professor of apologetics at the Toronto Baptist Seminary. He also teaches as an instructor with the University of Toronto in the area of gospel studies and archaeology of the Bible and the ancient Near East. Tony is also an ordained minister of the gospel, and he is the author of Worship and the Risen Jesus in the Pauline Letters and also Early Christian Creeds and Hymns. His forthcoming book, No King But Christ, The Collapse and Bankruptcy of Secular Worldviews, will be released later this year, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that book. Tony is married to his wonderful wife and has three children and a grandson, and I'm so happy to have him on today's podcast. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us here, Dr. Costa. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Thaddeus. All right. So before we jump in, uh, I got to ask you a really, really important question. Okay. Just how important is Bacalhão to being Portuguese? <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely important. It is, yeah. uh, it is central to the Portuguese identity. And so absolutely, Bacalhau or codfish as it's known in English. <laughs> Uh, it is our trademark. It's the Portuguese trademark uh, <laughs> dish for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, good. Well, luckily, we're, we're not just talking about fishy stuff today. We're going to be talking about some really important stuff. And I'm super excited for this. Uh, you know, you've got a new book coming out. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but firstly, you know, I, I want to set the tone for this this episode. You know, we're talking about the kingship of Christ in this episode. And, you know, that's been uh, a doctrine, I think, that's been kind of neglected and almost taken for granted in, in our days, you know. And in some ways, it, it's, it's ironic because, like, almost every Christian that you talk to will, of course, affirm, yeah, Christ is king. Like that's that is central to the Christian, um, you know, ethos, right? Uh, but like it, in today's world, practically speaking, it it is really been watered down in a lot of ways. I'm going to talk and talk about that. So let me let me say this. So the Western world today, you know, it seems like it's kind of lost its mind, and you know, by that I mean that you know there was broadly speaking a Christian mind that uh, that um, was the inheritance of you know the Christendom of yesteryear where um, our current um, societies and civil government systems even were, were built upon this Judeo-Christian foundation, right? And as that foundation is being eroded away, we're seeing this structure crumble, right? Um, 
especially now as we're becoming radically secularized, especially in Canada. So I wanted to ask you, you know, seeing as, you know, this is one of the topics that you're hitting in this book, like what are some of the main reasons in your analysis for this happening, this, this erosion of those foundations? Right. Like, like what were the foundations right. uh, and why did it get knocked out? Well, let me just add to what you said that, yes, Western mm -hmm. civilizations were based on uh, the centrality of God and his law. Uh, and so uh, the United Kingdom, their their coat of arms has the words uh, in French, Dieu et mon droit, God and my right. Uh, and also the American uh, Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, given certain inalienable rights by their creator. And of course, with Canada in our coat of arms, we have in Latin the words from sea to sea taken from mm -hmm. Psalm 72, referring to Messiah Jesus's reign over everything. And so uh, it's important to note, uh, as you've already mentioned, that is that the West has been built on these Judeo-Christian principles. But you are mm -hmm. correct that we've been seeing a steady erosion of these values. And the reason for that is because of the emergence of various worldviews that have, uh, um, have reacted to our longstanding Judeo-Christian uh, traditions. And so mm -hmm. the rise of postmodernism. So starting in the 1960s, you had the mm -hmm. sexual revolution in the United States. And with the sexual revolution, you also had the rise of postmodernism. And the key to postmodernism is that ultimate truth cannot be known and that objective truth is really unknowable. And that postmodernism posited the idea that truth is merely subjective. Mm -hmm. And so, saying like, what's true for you is true for you, exactly. what's true for me is true for me. Right? It's all relative. It's all rel yeah. sometimes called cultural relativism. And mm -hmm. so uh, out of postmodernism arose this idea that there was no objective truth. And therefore, if there's no objective truth and there's no objective grounding for truth, therefore, mm -hmm. God doesn't exist. And therefore, there's no need for God. Mm -hmm. And so you couple postmodernism with the rise of cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. Mm -hmm. That started in the early 20th century with Anthony uh, Gramsci and and mm -hmm. and then later with uh, other people like uh, Georg Lukacs and others. And mm -hmm. so with the rise of cultural Marxism and and postmodernism, which is one of the the babies, if you will, of cultural Marxism, mm -hmm. you have this uh, attack on two fronts. So mm -hmm. they made sure that they attacked Christianity and Judeo Christian Judeo Christian principles upon which the West was built. And so mm -hmm. this erosion that you mentioned, that is has been in the works for uh, at least almost 100 years or so. Uh, mm. And therefore, it was a very cl uh, clearly concocted plan to mm. undermine uh, Judeo-Christianity and to undermine ultimately Christianity and everything that goes with it, the family uh, mm. and, and the, the home and so forth. So would you say it was like an intentional, strategic sort of uh, chipping Absolutely. away at these foundations? Absolutely. There's no mm. doubt about it. Uh, I mean, Karl Marx thought the problem was economics. And so mm. Marx believed that that the tension was between the bourgeois, bourgeois and, and the proletariat, the, 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 the oppressors and the oppressed. And so mm -hmm. what the neo-Marxists did uh, was they agreed that there was this oppressed oppression tension but what mm -hmm. they did was they disagreed with Marx that it was based on economics. They said that it, it, that if we're going to change anything, it's going to have to go through the culture and through mm -hmm. academia. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, with yeah, that was Gramsci, right? The slow yeah. march, slow march through the institutions. Absolutely. He was the one who kind of Absolutely. pushed that whole uh, thing through the cultural yeah. engines. Absolutely. Yeah. And so they yeah. knew Christianity was the mm -hmm. was the foundation of Western society, mm -hmm. and so they understood that in order to revolutionize the culture, you need to get rid of Christianity which means you have to redefine the family, 
You have mm-hmm. to redefine what is male, what is female, what is a man, what is a woman. And so all of the mm-hmm. things we're seeing today is simply the mushrooming of all these mm-hmm. ideas in seed form in the early 19, in early 20th century. Yeah, and though that was explicitly their goal too. You read some of the early source materials from these Marxists and neo-Marxists, uh, and they're, they're explicit in that, that you know the goal is the destruction of the nuclear family, for example. A modern example of that would be the neo-Marxist uh, group uh, BLM, right? Correct. That was on their, their statement of beliefs uh, at one point before they took it down. Correct. Uh, so they're, they're very explicit in this, and it wasn't yes. an accidental slip or accidental erosion no. of these values. It was actually no. very intentional. Exactly. Yeah. And they also started mm. bringing in sexual liberation. Mm. So uh, they would show explicit sexual images in classrooms and schools. Mm. Uh, What's the significance of that? Like, why why the, the import of, like, sexual deviation? Like, how yeah. does that tie well, into... Because that undermines the, the heterosexual union that God had mm. declared for men and women. And so in this mm. sexual graphic material, it's basically saying you don't need to be married. Uh, mm. You can sleep with whoever you want. And then, of course, they supported homosexual agendas as well. Uh, mm. They supported the, the abortion industry, the depopulation. Uh, mm. They started attacking marriage to the point that uh, feminism was influenced by this, that mm. women didn't have to be, you know, the so-called pregnant and barefoot in the kitchen. They can become mm. lawyers and engineers. Uh, women can be whatever men could be. And mm. so in, in doing this, what they were doing was they were undermining the, the, the binary sexes that God had uh, created at the beginning and also, this led the way to the sexual revolution, which basically mm-hmm. meant that uh, if it feels good, do it. It doesn't matter if it's male on male, female and female, or polyamorous relationships. So mm-hmm. the whole thing was deliberately intended to undermine the family. Mm-hmm. And so the mm-hmm. cultural Marxist basically said, whatever Christianity exalts, we will deplore. And whatever mm-hmm. Christianity finds deplorable, we will exalt. Right, right. So um, just link that back to kind of the collapse that we're seeing within society, right? That, um, yeah, you have all of these things attacking like these uh, Judeo-Christian sort of uh, values such as family. That's a huge, huge um, fundamental one, right? But how does that then now ripple into what's happened society-wide? Yeah, well, with the destruction of the family, uh, you have to now redefine uh, what the family is. And then Mm. you have to redefine marriage. So marriage at one time meant the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. Today, Mm -hmm. marriage means the union of two persons, irregardless Mm -hmm. of their sexual gender. And so what that was meant to do was to eventually destabilize marriage, which is the foundation of society. It is Mm -hmm. the oldest institution in the world. It was the first ordinance that God created prior to the fall. It's the only ordinance he made prior to the fall. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with the removal and redefinition of marriage, you have to now redefine sex, you have to redefine mm. gender. And we are now in that mess where people are mm. now talking about uh, sexual gender being uh, being a, a social construct, that it's not mm. biological, that you're not born a male or a female. Uh, mm. It's preferential. You prefer or decide what sexual gender you are. And so mm. it, it by destabilizing marriage, you destabilize not just Christianity, but you destabilize the very fabric of society. And that is why the West is in the trouble that it's in today. 
Mm, that's and that's profound. That's something. It's, it seems so simple, but it is really, really profound. That one of the ways to, the, or I'd say actually the primary way to build a strong society is to build strong marriages, and strong homes, because Correct. that's what society is really comprised of. It's just a collection Correct. of um, you know families basically that are united by a common culture. That's the yeah. other part of it too. Is that you also destroy yeah. the culture that unites people, and then all of a sudden you have fragmentation. Yeah, within I mean, the you go back to the creation mandate. Uh, mm. It was is a man will leave his father and mother and, and cleave to his his wife, the two shall be one flesh. And then God said that they ought to multiply and fill the earth. Now, what you find today is the exact opposite. You know, mm-hmm. uh, families are told, oh, you don't need to, you don't need kids, you know, enjoy your life. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and there's a lot of talk about, uh, we got too many people on the planet. So let's mm-hmm. depopulate the planet. And so it's, it's, it's directly contrary to everything God said, and that mm-hmm. God created us to have dominion. That's very, mm-hmm. that's royal language, by the way. That's the language mm-hmm. attributed to kings and queens to have dominion over the earth. And what do we see today? The exact opposite, that the earth should dominate us. It's all about Mother mm-hmm. Earth. It's all about yeah. climate change. Uh, yeah. There's too many people on the planet. We need to save the earth. And so we have carbon taxes uh, mm-hmm. and so forth. So it, it is a direct assault upon the creator and therefore mm-hmm. a defiance against his kingship. Amen. And, you know, it reminds me of Romans 1, right? The exchange of the worship of the cre- the creator for the created, exactly. right? It, it's, it's kind of interesting how we regressed back to like an ancient sort of animism or like yeah. an elemental worship, right? Yeah, it's the, um, it's the exact opposite. And what Paul yeah. says in Romans 1 is very instructive because he says mm-hmm. that man, instead of worshiping God, uh, ended mm-hmm. up worshiping, uh, uh, making images of creatures that were four-footed mm-hmm. and and birds and insects and so forth. The very things that God mm-hmm. told man to have dominion over, the creeping mm-hmm. things, the, the yep. quadrupeds and the fowl of the air and so forth. What you yep. find in Romans 1 is the exact thing, the exact inversion that mm-hmm. instead of having dominion over the things God gave us, you're allowing those things to have dominion over you. And that's what we see mm-hmm. with all uh, the whole uh, planet Earth and Mother Earth uh, movement mm. that we see today. Yeah, yeah. I think we're we're slipping into some Gaia worship with all of this yes. uh, climate change activism, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> um, so let me let me ask you this. You know, uh, because it, anytime you remove something, like the, there's a power vacuum that has to be filled, right? And like you know, what's being removed with the secularization of society is not that like you know, as society becomes secularized, it becomes neutral. That's actually a myth. Like there's no such thing as neutrality. No. Something else has to fill that power void. Uh, before it used to be Christ- Christianity, broadly speaking, obviously not everybody was saved, but you know they had a broadly Christian mind. It was shaped yep. by a biblical worldview. But since that's been removed now and and been eroded, you know something else is taking its place. You you've mentioned it already. Um, th- these sorts of ideologies like uh, critical race theory, yep. and mar- uh, cultural Marxism, LGBTQ yep. ideologies, and so on. So, what do you think is the appeal of these ideologies today? Like, why is it that people are buying into these terrible yeah. ideas? Because, I mean, if you look at history, everywhere Marxism has been tried, it's been terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and it's been yeah. a disaster. But why are people drawn to it? It's interesting that what you yeah. said about that void, filling in the void, because mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins, as you know, who wrote the book, The God Delusion, who's an atheist, mm-hmm. he himself admitted that if Christianity goes, he said, mm-hmm. I fear what, it, what will replace it. I yeah. fear it. And so that's coming from an atheist who, who's mm-hmm. critical of Christianity. At least mm-hmm. he admits that under Christianity, the world has been prosperous. But whatever's going to fill that void is going to be very, very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason why I think all these movements have an appeal is, first of all, um, cultural Marxism is, is disguised uh, in the garb of social justice. The mm-hmm. idea that it cares about the marginalized, the oppressed, Compassion. that yeah. they care about you know gay mm-hmm. rights and women's rights and so forth and so on. 
But mm. I think the most appealing part is that it removes God. And so mm. Marxism by any other name is still Marxism, like a rose uh, by any other name is a rose. And so yeah. Marx taught that God was a fantasy, that religion mm -hmm. was the opium, the opiate of the people. It was a mm -hmm. pie in the sky. And so what cultural Marxism does is exactly the same thing. It's atheistic mm -hmm. to the core. And mm -hmm. what it does is it removes God. It removes this judge, this one who holds us accountable. The world mm -hmm. doesn't want that God. The world uh, uh, rebels against the idea of mm -hmm. a God who will hold us accountable. Man believes he's autonomous. And this type of ideology gives men that centrality, that it's it's about you, and mm. but it steals from Christianity. Like white privilege is, is the original sin of the white mm. man. He is guilty as charged simply because he has white skin, and it's mm. an unpardonable sin. The only way he can make atonement for that is by making reparations and mm. by giving the oppressed class, as they're called, uh, everything they need and want, give them, give mm. them equity and so forth. So mm -hmm. because of its atheistic and very humanistic uh, ideology, a lot of people want that. I don't have to be accountable mm -hmm. to some God. I don't mm -hmm. have to repent of my sins. I don't have any sins. Only the oppressors are mm -hmm. sinful. They've committed the sin of colonization. They've committed the sin of the Crusades. They've committed the sin of robbing native lands and, and so forth. You, you know the whole, uh, the whole canard. And so... Yeah. I think that at the root level, it's ideological, but it's also mm -hmm. spiritual because Romans 1 shows that man is in mm -hmm. a state of rebellion against God, and he will exchange the truth of God for a lie at any cost. And he does mm -hmm. that to suppress his sin. And that's the guilt in Romans 1, is that mm -hmm. they suppress their sin, and yet Paul could turn around and say, but they are without excuse. There is no one who has an mm -hmm. excuse before God. And yeah. therefore, this is why it is so attractive because it takes away God's sovereignty and it mm. removes the king. And so if you really want to know, Thaddeus, what social justice, mm. cultural Marxism, critical race theory, it's the same opposition we find in Psalm 2.1. The nations are raging. The people mm. are imagining a vain thing. And notice that the targets of their attack are two mm. persons. It is yeah. Yahweh and his anointed king. It Amen. is Yahweh and his Mashiach, his anointed yeah. one which is the son of God, the one that he has appointed on Mount Zion, whom mm. he says, you are my son. Today I've, uh, I have begotten you. So mm. it, is a, it, is, it is a rebellion at the very core. Amen. You know, that, that even reminds me of a, a quote that Marx actually wrote. He said that there's no way to destroy the Heavenly Father without destroying the earthly one. Correct. Right. And by that, he meant the destruction of the nuclear family. Correct. And, and I think that's also why uh, the attack against men is, is central to this, too. You destroy Absolutely. strong, godly fathers, yes. you destroy the home. And exactly. if you destroy the home, like you said, the whole ripple effect exactly. goes and so on. Exactly. Not only that. Um, it's uh, it's been shown in studies that like in in households where the father is is not believing and so on, like it's more likely that actually the the children will will end up becoming you know not Correct. believing and, and and unfaithful and so on. Yeah. So and it's also yeah. a way to destroy faith. Yeah, that's a point Barack Obama actually made about fatherless mm. families. Uh, but it's mm. interesting that by removing the man, you're removing the headship, and it's mm. God who's established man as the head of his family. Mm. And so by by removing man as the head and and mocking this idea of headship. Once again, you need to understand that there is a spiritual opposition here. It is opposing mm -hmm. the one who has established men as heads of their families. Mm -hmm. And so headship is something that God has ordained for men 
mm-hmm. over their families, but also in the church. That's why we there are no women pastors. Women are not supposed to be elders or ordained to the mm-hmm. ministry. God has appointed men. And that's yeah. because it all goes back to the idea of headship. And that's mm-hmm. the very thing that they're trying to eliminate. And that's also why these these you know debates and, and arguments about like you know complementarian, egalitarian, patriarchy, all these things, they're not unimportant. It's mm-hmm. not like oh yeah, you can just do whatever it is; it doesn't Correct. matter. It has implications. Like the, the fact that you know churches ordain women has implications beyond just their local ecclesiastical sphere, Absolutely. because they're teaching through that to their congregants, who then are in society and are in their families and so on. So there is a ripple effect, I Absolutely. think. And I think you know the pulpit in many ways, leads where the culture goes. Exactly. And when the pulpit falters, you see the ripple effect happen in the in, in, in culture. And we've seen that in the United Church, mm-hmm. the Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, mm-hmm. those that have ordained women. If you notice, it's it's a domino mm-hmm. effect. The moment mm-hmm. they ordain women, in a matter of years, they're ordaining gays and, and lesbians. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what they're doing. You see yep. it in the Church of England. The Anglican Church is ripping at the seams. And mm-hmm. so we need to understand that if one part of Scripture goes, then it's just a matter of time be- before another part goes. And it creates yep. a domino effect. Absolutely. And that's because Christianity is a whole. It's a comprehensive Absolutely. whole. It's Absolutely. not piecemeal, right? It's not all these exactly. doctrines here, there, there, there. They all exactly. fit together and they all have to cohere. Um, so when you're you're off in one point, it's going to have these ripple effects. It's like pulling that thread, right? That, that Correct. unravels the whole the garment. Whole thing goes. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yep, yep. We're going to soon see that the emperor has no clothes because those those threads have been pulled. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, cool. Let's talk a little bit about your, your new book. You've got a new book coming out. It's called uh, No King But Christ, The Collapse and Bankruptcy of the Secular Worldview. Now, that's quite a title. I love yes. it. By the way, great title. Um, so can you discuss a little bit about, you know, what was your motivation behind the book? Why do you think that this book is needed and why now? Why write it now? Well, I think it has to do with what you started off with, the kingship mm-hmm. of Christ. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people say Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, which mm-hmm. he is. But lordship, you know, there was a whole debate about lordship salvation, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to understand that the lordship of Christ is closely connected to his kingship. That's mm-hmm. why he's king of kings and lord of lords. There's a, an association mm-hmm. there. And so the reason why I wrote the book is because um, I think a lot of Christians have lost sight of the fact that Christ is king. He's not just king, but he's king of kings. And the king is the absolute reference point. And we know that ancient civilizations, far back as we can go, the ancient Sumerians, we know that the form of government was monarchical. It was kingship. Mm -hmm. It was the most ancient form of government. And as you see through the scriptures, what you find is that God is presented as the king. Right from Genesis 1, God is the sovereign king who orders creation into being and brings it about and so forth. And then you begin to see God endowing the first man and woman with kingship. So have dominion, rule, and so forth. And so he made Adam and Eve to be kings. He also made them priests and also prophets. But we're Mm. going to stick to kingship. And that kingship theme comes over and over in the Bible. Noah Mm. is told the same thing, to have dominion after the flood. And then that kingship language is applied collectively to the nation of Israel. You are a priesthood. You are a mm-hmm. royal priesthood. I'll make you a kingdom of priests and so forth. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you have that language communicated also to David and then Solomon and so on. And mm-hmm. so the king is the absolute authority. So in the book of Judges, which is very much like the days we're living in, it tells us that this was mm-hmm. a time when people did what was right in their own eyes. And there was but no he, king. That's it. Yeah. But a lot of yeah. people don't read the rest of it because there was no yeah. king. Why is the king so fundamental to Mm. the morality, the moral fabric of the people? 
Well, it's because if there's no king, there's no absolute lawgiver. There's no absolute reference point. And so mm. in the time of the judges, people did what was right in their own eyes precisely because there was no king. And mm. so that's a good tie, by the way, the, yeah. the king and, and lawgiving, right? Yeah. Like that's an important yes. function of the kingly Absolutely, rule. Absolutely, because the yeah. king was the lawgiver. So mm. if you look at the ancient civilizations that, that were neighbors of Israel, you mm. will notice that the king was also the son of the god. And so, mm. uh, in, for example, the Babylonians, uh, if you look at the Code of Hammurabi, the sun mm. god Shemesh, the sun god, is the one who calls uh, the king Hammurabi his son and also mm. makes him the legislator, the one to whom the laws are given. And mm. so in the ancient world, the king was believed to be not just the son of the god, but also the one who received the law from the god and mm. transmitted it to the people. Hmm. The king was also the shepherd of his people. And hmm. so if you remember the sarcophagus of Tutankhamun, you will hmm. notice that in his hands, he has not just the flail, but he has what looks like a, a crook, yeah. which is hmm. supposed to be the shepherd's crook. And so it's no hmm. surprise that David was a shepherd before he became a king. And it's hmm. no surprise that our Lord Jesus Christ himself is hmm. king, but he's the good shepherd. And hmm. so... The shepherd is the one who guides. He's the one who guides the sheep. He's the legislator, the lawgiver. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the king, but he is the moral standard, the moral mm -hmm. ground of all morality and ethics. And mm -hmm. therefore, he is our standard. When people argue they, you know, about ethics and morality, I always ask them, by what standard? What is the standard yeah. you're employing? Because ultimately, let's face it, everything comes back to authority. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, the laws in our country have authority. They're delegated mm -hmm. by, you know, the Senate and that that, and then of course the the Governor General who represents King Charles III in our country. Uh, and mm -hmm. so and so the King legislates. The King is the ground of being, and the mm -hmm. King is the exemplar of his people. So the mm -hmm. King in Deuteronomy 17 had to make a copy of the Torah so that he mm -hmm. would read it so that he would be able to understand the law of God and rule the people of God. And so the king is absolutely fundamental. And, and in the Psalms, it, it says about God, it says, the foundations of his throne is righteousness and justice. And what mm -hmm. that means is that God is the very ground of meaning and purpose and morality. Mm, amen, amen. That's so good. And I love how you tie together that, that kingship with lawgiving, right? And, you know, that's really, uh, I think, central to this discussion of, you know, at both analyzing where our society is today in the collapse, but also like, okay, what could be a possible way even forward? We have to get back to the king. We have to Absolutely. get back to his law. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, you yeah. know, Tolkien had it right. You know, it's the return of the king. We need, <laughs> yeah. we need the king. And, uh -huh. and so that's why the kingship of God is, is, is littered throughout all of Scripture. Uh, uh -huh. and, and so when we see the kingship of God, uh, you see right at the very end at the book of Revelation, it's mm -hmm. the king again. It's the king of kings. Uh, uh -huh. and, and, and the kings themselves, the kings of the earth, will come into the New Jerusalem and bring honor into it. And mm -hmm. so it is so fundamental because the king represents not just morality, but his sovereignty. Mm -hmm. The king is yeah. the absolute sovereign. And so this is yeah. why there's a very strong tie between kingship and, and sovereignty. Yeah, amen. And even, uh, you know, with that imagery of uh, the king in Revelation, you know, it, he slays his enemies with what? The sword that comes out That's of his right. mouth, which is, which is the, his word, his law. So he's right? a warrior as well. And so yeah. and, and yeah. in the ancient world, kings went mm -hmm. before their armies. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and so in Revelation 19, what does Jesus do? He leads the armies of heaven. And notice yeah. that 
the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, it says he has many crowns. Yeah. He doesn't have just one. He's king of kings. Uh -huh. And so he has many crowns on his head. Mm. Yeah, that's so awesome. So I think it's really interesting, the, the subtitle that you put for the book. It's it's the collapse of the secular worldviews, right? Yes. Um, and I think you're implying there that, you know, either that's already happening, that that collapse is already happening, or that is inevitable, that it will happen, right? So yeah. why do you think that is? Why is it, like, what is it about these secular worldviews yes. um, that makes them unstable and will lead to eventual collapse? Yeah, the collapse and bankruptcy of secular worldviews, the reason why I use that as a subtitle is to show that all these other worldviews eventually mm -hmm. collapse because they're incoherent with each other. Uh, mm -hmm. They lack God as their center. Now, the reason why democracy mm -hmm. worked for a long time was because we acknowledged God. I mean, even the United States, mm -hmm. you know, in God we trust. They had that in their currency. They still do. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But the moment God is removed from the picture, as we're seeing right now in the United mm -hmm. States under the Biden administration, and even in Canada under mm -hmm. Prime Minister Trudeau, is we're seeing the effects of this. We're seeing there's mass confusion. Uh, mm -hmm. Isaiah 520, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, mm -hmm. and, and those who call light darkness and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So what mm -hmm. do we have in Isaiah 520? You have cultural, cultural relativism. They're calling mm -hmm. what is good evil. Mm -hmm. What is evil is good. What is light yeah. is black. And what is darkness is, is white and so forth. And so mm -hmm. what we're seeing is by removing God, these worldviews inevitably will collapse because there mm -hmm. is no objective ground. It mm -hmm. will crumble because it's inconsistent. And so on the one hand, we say we value human life, but then on the other hand, we destroy human life in the womb. And, mm -hmm. and we value human life, but then we have physician-assisted suicide. We, va we value human life, but we have euthanasia. And so mm -hmm. what you find is there's these contradictions. Uh, we have reverse discrimination, that, that mm -hmm. um, uh, white privilege, and, and, and talking about white folks as if they're white trash, and so forth and so on, is, mm -hmm. seen, as, is seen as progressive. Uh, and so whenever you hear that word progressive, Thaddeus, we need to be very careful. The word mm. progressive implies change. If something is changing, and therefore, if something is changing and constantly in flux, what that means is, well, 100 years ago, you know, sodomy was abominable, but we've grown from that time. We have evolved. Mm. And mm -hmm. so we need to be very careful. Anything that's progressive implies that there has been change. Mm -hmm. But the word of God is absolutely constant. It is absolute truth. It never changes. And yeah. therefore, what we're seeing today is it doesn't matter if it's dictatorship, communism, cultural Marxism, uh, even democracy today without God, even constitutional mm -hmm. monarchies without God. What we're beginning to see is the collapse of these mm -hmm. civilizations. And so it doesn't mm -hmm. take much to notice that Canada is not the Canada it was 50, 100 years ago. Uh, even the United States uh, with the, the new left leftist liberals, they're not the same as the classical liberals like John mm -hmm. F. Kennedy and, and even Robert Kennedy today. These yeah. guys still hold to the Constitution and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. The modern mm -hmm. liberals today censor you. They will cancel you. You have cancel mm -hmm. culture and so forth. Yeah. So all of this. Thaddeus, all in the name of freedom. All in the name of freedom. <laughs> But you yeah, see, that's the there irony. Is, there is no freedom without God. And, mm -hmm. and, and you, know, you know, when you think about 1984, you've, you, yeah. you, you begin to realize that freedom is slavery. Uh, yeah. and, and therefore, if you really look at it, freedom today is not true mm -hmm. freedom. It is slavery. Um, well, it, it goes yeah. back to like, you know, what James says that it's it's God's law. That's the perfect law of liberty. liberty. Correct. And, and, you know, that that goes contrary to like what a lot of people think. They think yeah. the law means restriction. Yes. But God's word says that, no, his law actually brings true liberty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Notice in, in Exodus uh, 4, when God told 
Moses mm-hmm. to tell Pharaoh, let my son, uh, let my son go, that mm-hmm. he may come and serve me. Now that's interesting mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. the word serve there is the Hebrew word avad, which is also the word for slave. And yeah. what God is basically saying, let my son go, set him free, that he may serve me. In other words, here's the irony. This is very yeah. ironic. Slavery to God is actual freedom. Amen. When yeah. we serve and that's God, why we're called we're called douloi of Christ, right? Exactly. The slaves of Christ. Slaves yeah. of Christ. Exactly. Yeah. There's where true freedom lies. There's the yeah. irony. It's not it's not bondage. It's yeah. actually freedom. Yeah. Amen. That's so good. That's so good. Um, you know, one of the things that you said there about like uh, the, the the fact that prog- progressive um, ideology is always changing. It reminds me of a parable that Jesus told, right, about um, a wise man who built his, his house upon a rock and then the foolish man who built it on sand. Yeah. And the sand is is shifting, right? It's, it's always changing. And that's why it's not a good foundation. That's and right. That, that's why these worldviews will all lead to collapse. They're built well, on sand. They know? will. I mean, where's where's mm-hmm. the great empire of Egypt that ruled mm-hmm. for, for over 3,000 years? And where's Babylon? And where's yeah. Greece and Persia? And where is the great Roman Empire? They're all mm-hmm. in the dust. Of, they're all in the, in the dust of time. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and they've they've raised themselves up against God, and God has reduced them into the dust of time. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's just mm-hmm. a matter of time. They will collapse until they repent. Mm-hmm. Unless there's a revival, God is merciful and gives Canada mm-hmm. a, a revival, a reformation. Um, mm-hmm. We will definitely see the decline of Western civilization. And this is not yeah. me just speaking. I mean, when you think about it, um, you know, let me just quote a, uh, show you a book here. You're probably familiar with it, Thaddeus, by mm-hmm. Francis Schaeffer. You know, oh, yeah. um, uh, who? Yep. He says, how should we then live the rise yeah. and decline of Western thought and culture? He was talking about this in the 1980s mm-hmm. and very prophetically, because a lot of what Schaefer was talking about has actually transpired in our day. Oh, yeah. He was definitely prophetic. Like he was calling these shots way before. Long before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think if you track with the, the biblical worldview and, and have a biblical analysis, you can foresee these things. I mean, he's Absolutely. not alone in no. people who are already calling these shots oh, way no. before. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have um, more recent examples even of, um, of false ideologies, secular ideologies collapsing. I mean, you look uh, at Nazi Germany, for example, that's fascism, yeah. um, more to the right side of things. But then you have, um, you know, the collapse of the USSR, yeah. right, which, is, yes. which was huge. Like, Very. you know, back in the day with the Cold War, that was yeah. the big thing. They were going to be the global superpower. They were the big yeah. threat. Now, where are they, right? Yeah, no one they're, thought, they're, no one thought that would happen. <laughs> And a lot yeah. of it had to do with Christianity. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you think of, you know, my wife, Vita, she's her family. Her father was from Lithuania. And every mm-hmm. time the, the Russians would come in, there's a famous hill in Lithuania called the Hill of the Crosses, where they just mm-hmm. had thousands upon thousands of crosses. And the Russians would come and bulldoze them. And overnight, mm-hmm. the Lithuanians would erect them again. And it was kind of wow. a game of back, yeah. back and forth. But it showed the resilience of this mm-hmm. idea of Christ and his kingdom. And wow. and so when you think about it, uh, the USSR uh, shockingly uh, collapsed precisely mm-hmm. because of its incoherence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting that like while that was going on, even while they were under oppression, you had these pockets of Christianity, um, you know, that were thriving, um, still underground, obviously. But then when the collapse happened, who was it that rose up to rebuild? Right. The Christians, actually. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly. um, Rod Dreher in his book, um, Live Not By Lies, actually talks a little bit about yes. that. It was really interesting. Yes, yeah. I read that book. It's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so perhaps something for us to even think about today with, you know, pr- looking at perhaps the impending collapse of Western society, yeah. maybe that's the same paradigm that we might end up yeah. finding ourselves yes. in. Yes, and, and where, I like that title, yeah. Live Not By Lies. And it goes yeah. back to, once again, the objective standard. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm. The king is the objective standard. The king is the way, yeah. the truth, and the life. And so um, without objective uh, morality in the world, then we mm. justify fascism, we justify the Holocaust, we justify mm. genocide, we justify all the horrors of human history. Because at mm. the end of the day, if there's no objective truth, then Hitler did nothing wrong. Mao Zedong mm -hmm. did nothing wrong in China. Uh, Stalin did nothing wrong in Russia. And who are we to judge? We're always told, mm -hmm. you know, judge not lest you be judged. But the point here, yeah. even though it's taken out of context, the point yeah. here is that without God, as Dostoevsky once said, if God mm -hmm. doesn't exist, then all things are permissible. Yeah, yeah, no, that's the dark reality, right? Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, well, I love the main title. Let's talk a little bit about that, No King But Christ, right? And I think that, like we said at the front, forefront, you know, every Christian, I think, who should uh, at least, you know, resonate with that title and affirm that title. That was the early creed of the the, the, the church, right? Was that, that Christ was Lord, not Caesar, right? Right. Um, and, but I think that, you know, there's a, a big difference between acknowledging that yes. and then actually living that out, right? Yes. Between just verbally affirming it or even just mentally affirming it. And yeah. then actually having that lived out right Absolutely. so would you get to maybe unpack that a little bit for us like what are some ways that christians today um you know actually miss the meaning the true meaning of that fundamental creed that there is yeah. no king but christ like yeah what, maybe give some examples and let me that. just yeah. say that in the beginning yeah. of my book i i I, mm -hmm. I i explain why i chose that title it's actually mm -hmm. a, a play off of the uh in john 19 where where pilate is presenting jesus and barabbas to the crowds uh, mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, we do have some manuscripts of the New Testament that actually call Barabbas also Jesus. There, it was Jesus Barabbas and Jesus, the one called Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. And anyway, Pilate presents these two, and so Barabbas mm -hmm. is interesting. The word Barabbas is it's Aramaic for son of the father. And mm -hmm. what is ironic here is that the true son of the father was rejected, and the mm -hmm. pseudo son of the father was accepted, a criminal. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when 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 Pilate was put against the wall as to what to do with Jesus, he said. Shall I crucify your king? To which the Jewish religious leader said, We have no king but Christ. Uh, excuse me. We Caesar. have no king but Caesar. <laughs> yeah. And, and right there, Thaddeus, mm. that was an act of blasphemy. Mm. Because in so doing, what they were doing was they broke the first commandment. They're to have no other mm -hmm. gods but Yahweh. And so yeah. when they said, We have no king but Caesar, what they basically mm. did was they chose a Gentile king over them, which again, mm. they, they was an act of tyranny against the king. And mm -hmm. I would submit to you that that was the highest form of treason, because mm -hmm. we need to understand that this was not just a, a guy from a man from Nazareth, a carpenter. Mm -hmm. This was God himself in human flesh, the mm -hmm. king, the true king of heaven, who was being rejected by the people, by the leaders of Israel. Mm -hmm. And so when they said we have no king but Caesar, my, my title of the book is, of course, the Christian response is we have no king but Christ. And yeah. what that means is that, and this is very polemical, Thaddeus, because in Luke mm. chapter 2, when the, when the angels appear to the shepherds and say that they announce the birth of Christ, they say, this day in, in, in the city of David, mm. we, give you, we give you glad tidings that yeah. this day in the city of David is born unto you a Savior mm. who is Christ the Lord. Now, let's unpack mm. that very quickly before I get to your, to your question. Sure. Let's yeah, unpack yeah. that. I give you glad tidings. This is the word euangelion. It's the word that means mm -hmm. gospel, good tidings, glad tidings, good news. Mm -hmm. When an emperor was born, there was an announcement throughout the empire. There was this good news that was proclaimed that there was a new emperor who was born. Mm -hmm. And so when Augustus was, was appointed by Caesar, Julius Caesar, uh, he was adopted by, by Julius Caesar as his adoptive son. 
when Caesar died, Julius died, and Augustus was put on the throne, there was this great celebration, this great announcement. Mm-hmm. So the angels go, go on to say, a savior has been born to you. Now, why is this interesting? Because the emperor, one of his titles was Soter, was mm-hmm. savior in Greek. But he was also called Kurios, the Lord. That was one of the titles of the emperor. And the emperor was also called Philius Dei, the son of mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. And he was also called king. So what are they saying? Today, in the city of David, is born unto you the true king, mm. not Caesar. This is a very anti-imperial statement by the angels. The one mm. who was born in Bethlehem is the true emperor. He is the king, Messiah, Messiah, Christos. He is the mm. true Kurios. He is the true Soter, the true savior. Mm. And so that is a diametrical attack against the emperor. So yeah. how do we flesh this out? Well, if Christ... Now, I'll just point out there, sure. like, I think that's something that uh, is missed sometimes, um, that historical context Absolutely. by a lot of modern Christians, because, you know, we always hear it said, oh, well, you know, don't get political with your gospel, <laughs> yeah. right? But the, the gospel in the first century was super political Absolutely. because it was using all of those terms to communicate the gospel. Well, like it had direct political When a Christian said, kurios Jesus, Jesus yeah. is Lord. Mm-hmm. They were making the most political statement imaginable because yeah. the confession was Kaiser Kurios, Caesar yeah. is Lord. But they said, Jesus yeah. Kurios, Kurios Jesus, Jesus mm-hmm. is Lord. And that was an early confession of the church. And yeah. so we need to understand here is that if Christ is our king, then that means mm-hmm. that he must have the reign over every aspect of our life, our marriages, mm-hmm. our jobs, our church, um, everything. Everything, our our, our mm-hmm. bodies, our everything, Christ must have the true reign over all these things. You can call mm-hmm. him king, but if he doesn't truly reign in your life and every aspect of your life, then he's not your king. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. And even on that note, like of the political nature of the gospel proclamation. Uh, sorry, I just, my, sure. my mind went there because you mentioned Augustus, right? Um, yeah. uh, who was the adopted son of Julius. Uh, so he became Caesar. And I remember this because uh, I recently did an episode on this. Um, there's an inscription that has been found um, to Augustus where it says that there's there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. That's right. But the name Augustus yeah. Caesar, which yeah. is interesting because that is exactly the gospel proclamation that's, exactly. that's in Acts. Right, that there's no other name on the heaven given to men to, by Act, which they be saved, but it's not yeah. Augustus. Acts four twelve. It's Jesus Christ. Exactly. Right. And, yeah. and again, like us as twentieth century, you know, twenty first century Christians, like we miss that. <laughs> we don't. Exactly. We don't get how political that, and, that and, would have been in the first and, century. And you know how central Augustus is. The month of August is named after him. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> July in <laughs> is actually named after Julius. So that's yeah. why they come yeah. after the others. Is Julius Caesar was the mm. adoptive father of of uh, of Augustus Caesar. So. Yeah. That's how central uh, Caesar Augustus was. Uh, mm. But definitely, there's no doubt about it that that what you find in Christianity is an anti-imperial statement. That's why mm. Christians were killed, because they would mm. not make that confession, and they would mm. not pinch, uh, give a little pinch of incense to the image of the emperor. Mm. So flesh it out a little bit more for us in terms of how does that work today? So we understand, we've established there that like the early Christians, they were, you know, being political in, in one sense um, with their gospel proclamation and how they lived out their Christian faith. And it cost them. Like a lot of them were, you know, flayed alive. They were, they were crucified. They were sawn in two, all these things. Yes. Um, how about 
today? Like, what does that look like for the faithful Christian today? Yeah. Does our gospel and our Christian living have political, inf- um, you know, impact? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let's 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 face it. I mean, John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. If John the Baptist didn't believe that he should get involved in politics, then he would have stayed quiet when he found out yeah. that Herod uh, Antipas had taken his sister-in-law to be his wife. And, and what did John the Baptist do? He said, it is not right. He confronted him. He mm-hmm. said, it is not right for you to have your brother's wife. And it mm-hmm. was for that reason that John was imprisoned and eventually mm-hmm. decapitated. So yeah. if John didn't believe Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, he would have just mm-hmm. kept quiet. Yeah, and, and not only that, what standard was he holding the king to? Exactly. Right? And then, and then <laughs> Again, Jesus, back to that question, by yeah, what standard? And then Jesus comes along and they say, yeah. look, Herod's looking for you. And he says, go mm-hmm. tell that fox. I mean, how <laughs> dare Jesus become so insensitive? I mean, watch yeah. your tone, Jesus. Uh, you know, what are you calling Herod a fox for? A sly creature, yeah. a cunning creature? Mm. And so Jesus has... He's just saying he was foxy. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> foxy fine. Yeah. So Jesus had no problem doing that. Uh, mm. And so I think that, um, that Christians have an obligation to speak against political corruption. We are called mm. the salt of the earth uh, in Matthew 5.16 and the light of the world for a reason. And so what Christianity, what Christians say and do in society has a major impact in, mm-hmm. in the political realm. And, and, yeah. so, and so what I'm saying is Christians do have a right to, to critique the mm-hmm. government. They have a right to talk to their MPs and their MPPs and bring their complaints and call for justice mm-hmm. and righteousness. Mm-hmm. You know, Proverbs 14.34 says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach mm-hmm. to many people. And so we need to understand that the cry of the prophets was let justice run down like rivers. And, you know, what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and do right and walk humbly with your God? And so Mm. absolutely, we're not to do the holy huddle on Sundays. We're not to be keepers of the aquarium. And and, and we're not to hide in our churches waiting for the rapture. We have Mm. to become involved. We are the salt of the earth. Uh, And so when 9-11 happened, I don't know if you remember this, Thaddeus, but the churches Mm. were packed. On the following mm. Sunday, they were packed because people were looking for meaning and purpose. Mm. And so I think that's where the church has dropped the ball. It has forgotten to be a salty mm. church. We're too we're too too much into sweeteners. We are preaching uh, so much sweet sermons that people are getting spiritual diabetes. Uh, mm. We think we're the sweetener of the earth. We're not. We're the salt of the earth. And so mm. until we realize that, we're not going to make an impact in our world. Yeah, amen. And that that brings it full circle, right, to what we opened off with. Like, why did we, how do we get to where we are? You know, it's obviously, yes, the the erosion and the cultural Marxism and all those things, uh, you know, beating away at the Christian foundations. But also, I think the flip side of it was that Christians were asleep. Yeah. (laughs) They let it happen. Yeah. Like, like it wouldn't have happened if they were actually involved and were actually taking, you know, back when you could actually speak without it costing you your job. Absolutely. (laughs) So, yeah. That was the time to hold the line. Absolutely. So, they take a laissez-faire attitude, just leave it alone. And and so, uh, the church has, because I think of the rise of modernism and the rise of higher criticism in the universities, the churches have retreated Mm. into the shadows. And so, mm-hmm. and that is that is very sad because uh, we are seeing the, you know, the only thing necessary, Edmund Burke once said, at least he's said to have said this, the only thing necessary mm-hmm. for evil to spread is when good men do nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, unfortunately, that's that's what we're seeing today. And so, here's, mm-hmm. here's the vacuum again, Thaddeus. So, when the church mm-hmm. leaves a gaping hole, what comes to fill it in? Cultural Marxism, mm-hmm. and now Islam is coming to the mm-hmm. West, and Islam is now trying to uh, convert people uh, to their Mm -hmm. worldview as well. 
Yeah, yeah, amen. So uh, kind of um, related to that, I want to hear your opinion on this. Uh, seeing as you're a seminary professor, you've taught um, and, and trained up men who are becoming pastors and so on. Um, obviously, there's some sort of lack here because, you know, like I said, the, the the pulpit kind of leads the way, right? And especially for people within the pews, you can't expect like congregants to be standing up and being equipped to do these things if the, the pulpit isn't leading that. So right. I think somewhere there's been a dropping of the ball also in terms of how pastors are trained up. Um, you know, maybe speak to that as somebody who's taught in seminaries, who maybe knows a little bit more about that world. Yeah, like, yeah I think... Why is, why is that happening? Yeah, I, I think that we're, we're not teaching our pastors to relate to the world. And I, one of the things I've always pushed for in, in the seminaries I've taught in is apologetics, is, is giving reasons for faith, how to defend mm -hmm. yourself. And so, unfortunately, what a lot of seminaries do, and a lot of them are becoming cemeteries, unfortunately, uh, yeah. they're filled with dead men. And, and, and what they're doing is they're training pastors to, to basically become isolated into bubbles. And so a lot of pastors today mm -hmm. live in bubbles. They're part of their, just their local church, and that's all there is to it. And, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, most pastors that I come across today don't know how to relate to the outside world. They don't. They, they know their church history. They may know some Hebrew and Greek. But when it comes to engaging the outside world, like critical race theory, for example, it's bad mm -hmm. enough that some of these churches have allowed critical race theory to enter through the door, uh, not through mm -hmm. the back door, through the front door, openly. Mm -hmm. And we saw the Southern Baptist Convention almost tear apart because of this. And so mm -hmm. what I'm seeing is that we're not training pastors today who are able to engage the culture and, and become mm -hmm. conversant on these various worldviews that are corrosive, not just to society, but corrosive to the church as well. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so unfortunately, that's been my experience. And so I make mm -hmm. it my intention always to focus on apologetics and teach them practical evangelism, how to engage with atheism and agnostics mm. and islam and cults and so forth mm -hmm. that's so good and also um you know on on that note of pastors becoming sort of isolated in their own bubbles right like the uh it, it become like i guess ivory, ivory tower, tower uh theologians yes. right yes um you know i think that perhaps tied in with that is the whole idea of like full-time vocational pastorship as yes. a norm yes you know um and not saying that it's necessarily you know um off the table. Yes. I don't know if I can go that far, but I do think that there are drawbacks to that when you have like this becoming the normative um, way forward for pastors. You know, you do your seminary training, which yes. by the way, usually puts you into a whole bunch of debt yeah. uh, to then go take a job that doesn't yeah. pay very well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but then you're expected to be full-time vocational in yeah. this pastorship. Um, but oftentimes that can end up making you like really detached from the reality of like what your congregants would be facing for like a good example is like if you're not um on the ground with congregants um in in a real like you know smelling like a sheep sort of way um you could be totally oblivious to the fact that like let's say every wednesday they're going through dei training yes and they they're totally you know have no sort of uh, equipping on how do I even process this? And, you know, maybe then they start slipping into this. Well, I guess my faith doesn't have anything to do with this. Like, so, you know, they, they become these compartmentalized Christians. Yes. Um, what would you say to that? Like, and is there like a way to, to, to remedy that? I 100% agree with you, Thaddeus. This yeah. is one area where I've always been convinced when I've done pastoral mm -hmm. ministry, I've also, I, I, I'm bivocational. So I do a lot of teaching as well. 
and conferences mm-hmm. and so on. So I totally agree with you. I think that's one of the things that we have lost from mm-hmm. the early Christians. Um, if you notice, um, in Judaism, in the time of Jesus, nobody could be a rabbi unless they had a trade. And mm-hmm. so uh, the rabbis made it very clear that if you want to be a rabbi, you must also have a job on the side, and that is to prevent mm-hmm. you from becoming proud and to prevent Satan mm-hmm. from tempting you with, with over, over excessive pride and so forth, because knowledge puffs mm-hmm. up. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's no surprise that the Lord Jesus was a rabbi, but he was a carpenter by trade. And it's also no surprise that the Apostle Paul was a rabbi, but he was a tent maker. Uh, mm-hmm. He and uh, and a number of his uh, companions were tent makers. And so he did that work while he was still founding churches and building churches and teaching churches. And so yeah. I truly believe that uh, you need to be grounded in some way and, 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 and be mm-hmm. connected to the outside world in that way. Mm-hmm. Because when you're yeah. just in the church day in, day out, it does create this this insulated ivory tower mentality, and it does create mm. a bubble. There's no doubt about it. You become disconnected mm. from the world. And that's mm. what the mon- monasteries did. I mean, the monks mm. did that precisely to be disconnected from the world and yeah. take vows of silence and chants and so forth. And so, unfortunately, I think a lot of the pastorate today is doing that. I really do believe in mm. the bivocational calling of an elder. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think it can... It can not always, but it can end up leading to a sort of pietism, right? Where um, all you're concerned about is just spiritual, so to speak, uh, realities, yes. right? Yeah. And, and there's there's no on the ground, like real gritty sort of uh, theology on the ground, Absolutely right? Absolutely right. Yeah. Mm. That's so good. So good. Um, okay, cool. So let's, this was a really great discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I hope that our, our listeners benefit a lot. Uh, tell us a little bit more. Um, tell our listeners a little bit more about like where they can get a copy of your new book, uh, perhaps when it's coming out, and uh, where they can find out a little bit more about your ministry. Right. If they go to YouTube, uh, Toronto mm-hmm. Apologetics, I will be announcing the release of my book. I'm hoping it'll be this fall. I, I've got it sent out to a number of endorsers who are now reading through mm-hmm. it, and they'll be giving their endorsements. So I'm hoping that by the fall, maybe November, God willing, December or the winter, it might come out. So go to my YouTube channel, Toronto Apologetics, and you'll get all the information there. And as we were talking about the creeds earlier, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have it nearby here, but um, one of the books that I wrote uh, is on earliest Christian creeds and hymns. And so if people are interested yeah. on that, they can get that. Uh, they can just check Amazon. Uh, and they can learn about that title, Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord. There's uh, chapters on those titles. Awesome. Very good. Very good. Well, I'll make sure that all the links are in the descriptions for you guys. Uh, that way you can find uh, Dr. Costa really easily and follow his ministry. He's been such a blessing to the church. And I hope that many of you will follow his uh, his apologetics ministry through YouTube as well. All right. Well, until next time, solely Deo Gloria. Amen. Thanks for listening to the TheoTV podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.